Welcome back to the Religious Studies Project. I'm David Robertson. And I'm Christopher Carter. And I'm delighted to be back with my co-host David in association with the British Association for the Study of Religions and the North American Association for the Study of Religion. Indeed. And this is our fifth year? Yeah, coming into our fifth academic year now. Fifth academic year. Um, it's been an eventful summer. Um, those who pay close attention to the RSP might have noticed that our, our website sort of just had a major breakdown for a while. Um, but that is now all rectified. We've found some new hosts and everything's going to be fantastic. We still haven't got our email addresses up and running. So if you're looking to contact us, currently it's RSP editors and Ops Digest, both at gmail.com. But we should have the emails up and running in the next couple of weeks. And we'll leave those temporary ones up for a short while after that, just in case. Um, yeah, let's not name and shame the uh, server to blame. Um, but uh, we'll pass lightly over that into what's looking like an incredibly exciting uh, semester coming up. Um, I, we'll maybe talk a little bit more about that after, indeed, after what we could we could call the inaugural episode. <laughs> and um, we're lucky to have once again our good friend Demu Terra. And this week he will be talking about categorizing religion from case studies to methodology. And this was a interview recorded by Brianne Fallon at the EASR conference in Helsinki earlier this summer. So I'll pass over to Brianne and Demu. Yeah, the category of religion is often referred to as slippery or problematic. As such, scholars have sought to deconstruct the term in order to be free of its weight. But what happens after the deconstruction? Where do we go from there? How do we study particular cases? How are new groups officially recognised? What roles do scholars play in the application of the term to new groups? To discuss his work on Karl Hukansa, the people of the bear, the category of religion and post-deconstruction methodologies, I have with me a longtime friend of the Religious Studies Project, Dr. Timu Tara. Tara is a senior lecturer at the Department of the Study of Religion at the University of Helsinki and docent at the Department of Comparative Religion at the University of Turku. His recent publications include Discourse on Religion in Organising Social Practices in Making Religion and Doing Things with Religion, Discursive Approach in Rethinking the World Religions Paradigm in Afterworld Religions. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. So what we're going to talk about today is part of a conference presentation that you presented at ESR 2016. If you just wanted to um, run through the idea of deconstructing the term religion, um, it has a long history at the Religious Studies Project. It's something we've talked about a lot, um, but the introduction you gave at the presentation was really useful, I think. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been a big fan of scholars who have uh, um, written critically about the category of religion, uh, detected its history, its uh, origins and emergence, and uh, um, many of these scholars, such as Talal Assad, Daniel Dubuisson, Tim Fitzgerald, Russell McCutcheon, Brent Nongpri, uh, Zazie Smith, and, and many others, have argued that religion is unhelpful and thoroughly problematic analytical category. And these scholars differ in their understanding um, whether whether religion should be used at all uh, in in our analysis. And some say that it can be used for heuristic purposes in, in particular research. 
And some say that it's maybe better not to use it at all because the, the problems related to the category surpass the benefits of using it. And this kind of work is largely understood to be deconstructive in a sense that uh, these scholars have detected the historical emergence of modern category of religion and, and problematized its usefulness. And then some scholars, actually quite many scholars, ask questions, where do we go from here? And, and one particular example from this is uh, an article by Kevin Schilbrack, uh, entitled, After We Deconstruct Religion, Then What? And uh, that was published in 2013 in Method and Theory in the Study of Religion. And, and my approach is, in a way, uh, my answer to that question. Yeah. Um, so, your answer to the question, um, we might work through the case study of the people of the bear. Um, would you like to tell us a little bit about the people of the bear? Yeah. People of the bear, Karhun Kansa, we are actually talking about a very small Finnish group. Um, they have approximately 30 members, so it's very small. It's currently a registered religious community in Finland. They see themselves as part of Suomenusko, Finnish faith. There are other groups who, who see themselves as part of that same, same faith or religion, however they want to call it. But uh, People of the Bear is the only one that is registered as a religious community and only one that has attempted to register as a religious community in Finland. And the name People of the Bear comes from the idea that uh, bear is understood as mythical ancestor of mankind. This is actually quite an old idea that comes from Finnish pre-Christian mythology. And in addition, they consider nature and, and its parts, such as places, certain stones, as sacred. Okay. But they don't define themselves as pagan group. They, they never use the term in their application, but that's how people quite often classify them. That it, it has some affinities with other, other groups that are um, self-identifying as pagans. And one thing that's quite important for people of the bear is that they consider Kalevala, Finnish national epic, as inspirational for them, as well as all the things we know about Finnish pre-Christian worldviews or mythologies. So that's that's basically um, the the uh, what, what Karhun can say is about. Okay, um, so why did they want to be recognised, and how was the um, how did that process go for them in you know becoming a religion to use the term? Yeah, I, Kansa uh, applied for the status of religious community in 2012. And the case is very interesting because they first got their expert report from the committee and that was negative. Okay. But in Finland, it is possible to revise the application and then you have to adjust yourself to the, to the demands of the, of the committee. There are some formal requirements, but also some 
let's say, technical issues that you have to um, use certain terms and, and, and phrase in a, your ideas in a certain way that, that you will be um, at least considered seriously for, mm -hmm. for, for being registered as a religious community. And obviously the revised application was much better than the, than the first one. But what I, I think is very interesting in this particular case is that they also received lots of media coverage after the first negative report. And, and for me personally, this is an interesting case because I was involved in that, that uh, media debate uh, first uh, through my blog post. And then it was taken in the mainstream media. And in the end, I, I ended up having media discussion with the Ministry of Interior in Finland, who is responsible for naming the expert committee. And uh, we, we can't really talk through the case today about the, all the details regarding the media coverage and nuances of the application. But um, in any case, uh, in December 2013, a new positive expert report was, was released. And soon after that, people of the Bay were registered as a religious community in Finland. And one thing that is very interesting in the whole case is that is to ask why they really wanted to become registered as a religious community. And there are a couple of general uh, benefits you get if you are registered. You, you may get a uh, license to, to conduct valid ceremonies like marriage, funerals, name-giving ceremonies and so on. And you may become uh, part of religious education in schools. You are eligible to apply financial support from the Ministry of Education. It's not a lot of money, but it's some. Um, you get legal protection under the law concerning freedom of religion. And in, in general, you get recognition from the society. And uh, I mean, people in, in, in the same field as well. Um, and people usually then consider that you are not just any kind of cult or yeah. dubious group <laughs> yeah. when, when you are sort of, you got uh, something on paper that, yeah. that you are a registered religious community. But in, in, in the case of Karhunkans, a very interesting thing was, was uh, the fact that they um, consider certain uh, stones sacred. And there was this case in 2010 already in the city of Hamenlinna, where the biggest cupstone from Iron Age was removed in 2010, away from the expansion of car sales company. And in Finland, there is this Antiquities Act, which protects the stones, but it allows removal as long as the stone remains unbroken. So in their application, people of the Bear uh, stated that they honor particular sacred places and bring gifts to them. And they used cupstones as an example. And they emphasized that they, they consider cupstones as sacred in their original location because they are taught to be ancient sacrificial sites. Mm. And in Finland, only registered religious communities are able to um, appeal to the law concerning the sanctity of religion under the law on religious freedom. So this actually meant that, that uh, and, and it was, this was ex 
explicitly pronounced by the chair person of the of people of the pair Oskar Ratinen that success, successful registration process may help them to make a case that the locations of, of capstones are sacred to them and thus the removal would count as a case against sanctity of religion so okay. so you can see that that they, they were obvious benefits mm. of becoming registered religious community for for people of the bear mm. They definitely um, seem to be having much more of a, a voice when they're registered um, as opposed to an unregistered community which wouldn't have that weight behind the removal of the stone. So there's definitely a big benefit there. Um, are there any other case studies that you think are, are relevant before we move on to the methodology side of the interview? There, there are plenty of case studies uh, that are useful useful uh, to compare with uh, this case and others and and uh, if i just uh, mention some of case studies i've done myself so I've, i've studied wiccans in finland who and their registration process they failed in that but that's very interesting case anyway because because in that process um expert committee was really trying to make up their mind uh, whether whether wiccans can be regarded as religion mm-hmm. And I've also also studied uh, the Jediism in Britain, or done I've done one case study concerning that, and then I've studied uh, the Crude Network in Britain jointly with Susan Owen. Mm-hmm. We co-authored a chapter on the case where uh, the Crude Network received charitable status um, under the the religion banner. Uh, in in England and Wales, and even though laws are different in different countries, and it's it doesn't have to be about law; it can be about other institutions, for example. But but many many cases have clear connections, even when the law and and the context is different. So these case studies. What do they teach us about methodology and using the term religion? Should we be outlining it in our articles, you know, for the purpose of this work, religion's going to be this, or do you think that's unuseful? Uh, Should we be using a term like faith or tradition? Where where do we go from here with these case studies? I think overall these case studies show how people make use of the category of religion, how they promote their own interests. Uh, but if we look from other direction, they, they also show how we are governed mm-hmm. by the category of religion. And uh, in in studying these cases, um, I am highlighting quite strongly that I don't define religion in these particular cases. I study Um, those cases where other people negotiate what counts as religion and why something counts as religion and what are the, the consequences of those processes. Mm-hmm. And it is it is quite clear that and many people find it very tempting to ask in, in these so-called boundary cases that, well, in, in my definition, this is really a religion uh, or that this group is really not a religion and I I, I try to um, emphasize that 
I'm not doing that at mm. all. Mm. Even when I was part of this media debate concerning people of the bear, I never suggested that people of the bear uh, is a religion or that it is not. And I never suggested that the group should be granted the status of a religious community. Mm-hmm. I was simply trying to highlight how how a society operates by using that category. Mm-hmm. But still, it is quite common that people still ask you the question mm-hmm. that how do you define religion then? And, and uh, then I have to say that, well, within this setting, I'm not. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not arguing that that um, religion cannot be used and defined uh, nominally for for particular purposes, but I'm insisting that that these cases, if they are studied without defining religion, are much more interesting, and and I think the results are more interesting. At least that's that's my opinion. Of course, we can debate endlessly mm. what counts as interesting. And, and relevant, <laughs> yeah. but but that's that's my approach, and I try to show, uh, demonstrate by by doing these case studies that other people can see if they find the analysis interesting. Mm. I think sometimes we get so hung up on is it a religion, is it not that we miss what else the case can offer, and I think in these examples, for example, the people of the bear, the idea that their sacred stones were being moved and um, that idea of legitimacy is, in my opinion, more interesting, as you say, we could debate that, than whether they were a religion or not. It's There's so much more to these case studies than just yes or no, this sort of black and white thinking. I don't know what you think about that. Um, so how do you think power plays into this whole matter of the term religion and naming different boundary groups? Well, I tend to ask quite simple questions in these case studies, such as who benefits of being a religion or who benefits of denying religiosity of a group or a practice. And, and I can also ask how are we governed if I'm trying to look at uh, at the level of, of state or society more broadly, not just not just a particular group. And I think it, it is quite clear that people achieve something by being a religion. But that happens within the governing structures of society. So by being a religion, you gain some, but at the same time, you lose some. When you get some concrete benefits you are usually uh, molded in a way that, that you have to adjust yourself to the criteria that is used in an institution, in law, or, or wherever. And that is typically so that you have to represent your group as somehow reminding of Protestant Christianity. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, um, you are sort of marginalized or domesticated in a way that, or as some people say, you are depoliticized in a way. Um, so the idea goes so that, that being a religion definitely guarantees some privileges 
to selected groups. But at the same time, it distances them from the so-called secular center of mm -hmm. society, sort of political, so-called secular power. Mm -hmm. So that's that's one of the main uh, and, and and very simple example how power is part of this analysis of power is part of these cases. Is there any examples that you can think of where uh, a group really didn't want to sort of apply to be officially labeled a religion in sort of legal terms? There are actually many cases, and even in the cases I've analyzed, for example, Wiccans in Finland and um, the Druid Network in England and Wales, there are definitely plenty of self-identifying Druids in Britain who didn't want to be part of that Druid Network. Mm. So they considered it as something that uh, domesticates um, Druidry and uh, that, that they lose some of the experiential nature of druidry and uh, maybe maybe lose something about the, the radical nature of or, or their self-image as being quite radical mm. people or radical group. Um, and in Finland, uh, Wiccans were quite strongly divided whether they, I mean, some wanted to, to put in the application and become registered as a religious community and and then some said that this this is not uh, a religious group at all these these who are applying are just a bunch of weirdos they are not proper wiccans mm. at all and and then there are other examples like like um like groups in finland who who uh don't want to be classified as religion because they um even though they may qualify as religion according to many and even most um, scholarly definitions of religion. But some groups just don't want to do it because that's how they are able to attract people to their events. Maybe not members, but, but if people for, for events. And, and um, because in Finland many people are mem officially members of the Lutheran Church, then you, you get to the problem of uh, a question of exclusion, mm. that whether you accept that that there are sort of two religions or religious identities and and things like that. So some groups consider it better not to not to go to that route at a, uh, or, and to that debate at all. Mm. So so people reflect and then negotiate what is most useful for them. Mm. So this discourse seems to be working on many levels. There's an element of power. There's an element of benefit, but also those who are kind of railing against that. Um, I know in your presentation you sort of had like six big points to summarise um, the discourse. I don't know if you just wanted to run through that to wrap up the interview. Yeah. We've been talking all, already about uh, two methodological points I wanted to make first, that we don't have to define religion in these cases. Okay. And second was uh, highlighting that power matters. Mm -hmm. Third point is that uh, I argue that discourses operate on many levels. So it's, it's not simply by looking at the origin of the modern uh, discourse on religion, modern category of religion. Um, there are plenty of useful studies focusing on that, and they are very good, but they are mainly focusing on 18th and 19th centuries. Mm -hmm. But I think they don't tell enough about the, fun the many functions 
of the category of religion. So I think it's more situational and contextual issue, and that is why we need empirical case studies. Mm-hmm. And, and my small contribution has been to that scholarship. And then my fourth point was that, that I'm, I'm very interested in these boundary cases. So, so that is how discourses operate, by exclusion, by negotiating in boundaries. And uh, I think it's very interesting to study when, to use Foucauldian terms, when simple utterances become seriously taken statements. So when statements are taken seriously, they become more effective. Uh, usually they need some institutional support, whether, whether it's in school, in, in law, in, in parliament or somewhere else. And, and the point I want to highlight is that because some, some people say that is it useful to study these small groups, marginal groups? I'm not really studying these marginal groups. They, they are cases mm. about uh, how discourse on religion works and changes. And in my presentation, I, I even suggested uh, that, that it seems to me that there is something like what I call a reflexive moment going on in the character of religion, that people have become more aware of the work uh, a category of religion can do. Mm. And that is how all those debates are, are so topical at the moment. And, and, and religion becomes more discussed, contested, challenged, and so on. So... But that's, I think, uh, negotiable. We we can negotiate whether that is really going on, has it always been the case, Mm. and what is really the historical change in that. But I'm just putting it on the table that that people can uh, develop or criticize. Mm. And and then my sixth point was sort of a self-reflective point about scholars who also produce discourse on religion that scholars are not and they cannot be total outsiders in these debates. Sometimes scholars are directly involved by giving expert statements or commenting in in the media something. Um, But even even in cases where scholars are not directly involved, they are sometimes referred to. So in that sense, you cannot be an outsider. And this is something that should be reflected on in the analysis, that analyzing discourse is itself a discursive practice, although it's a different kind of discursive practice. Mm. But, but nonetheless, it's, it's part of the field. Yeah. And, and um, especially this case about uh, people of the pair is interesting for me personally, because I was so strongly involved in the public debate. Mm. But this is sort of my answer to Kevin Schilbrack's uh, question after we deconstruct religion, then what? We can analyse these cases. Yeah, they're definitely uh, very useful. And as you say, they give us so much um, to think about, not just in terms of, of are they religion or are they not, but the benefits and the power and everything that's playing into it. Um, any concluding points to leave us with? I think there are um, methodological tools to be developed 
in studying these, these cases. Um, I don't think that we really need a step-by-step method on how to do these case studies. And, and what, but, but what we need is, is to test and, and develop the theoretical vocabulary, what, what kind of terms we use and, and how we think about the, what kind of data is appropriate for, for these kinds of case studies. But uh, I'm, I'm doing it myself and I hope some others are inspired to do that too. Great. I think that there's, this has definitely given us a lot to think about, um, particularly in not just looking at the, the big cases, you know, the Scientology cases and things like that. These sort of, as you say, boundary cases are so important in, in our discussion and, and learning where we stand as scholars. So thank you very much for joining us and um, we look forward to interviewing you next time. Thank you. Really wonderful to hear that interview there. And Temu's been on the RSP a few times. Um, I interviewed him on Religion and the Medium a couple of years ago, so that's in our archive. He's also been a contestant. Um, he was a contestant on our uh, 14 to 1. That he was. was yes. Recorded at the EASR again that time in Liverpool. He was also a contestant in um, Nulpois the year previously. Oh, in fact, yes, yes. That's although yeah, he yeah, went, yeah. he went out very quickly. But uh, yes, he was Nulpois, and yeah, Erfurt was when we did fourteen to one, and um, Liverpool was where we did Nulpois, and then he was also in our religion in the UK twenty eleven census episode that we did as well. So he was indeed, and he's very interested in these ideas of of how the sort of data and the classification uh, work together, and this particular um, interview focuses on um, legal issues around uh, the term uh, religion and how it is often, in a practical sense, the definition comes from these um, relatively minor legal tussles, shall we put it. Um, and so really interesting stuff about how the category works in a social context, not merely in a sort of what's often considered just a dry academic uh, context. Absolutely. And he's also worked quite closely with our BASR colleague, Suzanne Owen, um, on that issue. And you can hear her talking about that in her podcast on Druidry and the definition of religion. Speaking of the BASR, David. And speaking of uh, Nolpois and um, um, 14 to 1, we've just recorded our 2016 festive midwinter non-denominational special. Exactly. It was a fantastic experience um, in Wolverhampton. So we'll not tell you what it was. We'll leave that for the esoteric knowledge of the people who were there, but you'll <laughs> hear that. Um, I think earlier today I discovered it would be the 19th of December. That's so correct. We'll put that out. And um, it's going to be a, a video, a, a, a vodcast, a vidcast, as well as audio this year. So um, we hope you enjoy that. How, we certainly enjoyed being um, in Wolverhampton for the BASR conference. Um, a lot of RSP activity um, but just a generally uh, enjoyable and stimulating time. And yeah. we are eternally grateful to our original and still the best sponsors, the BASR. We've got plenty more news to share with you. A bit of news is about a new series that we've got coming up for you this um, semester. We'll tell you more about that next week, but next week's podcast is the first in that series. It's a series uh, produced in association with the British Sociological Association's Sociology of Religion Study Group, or SOCREL, as we'll try and just refer to it from now on. Um, and it's a broad introduction to um, 
New Horizons in British Sociology of Religion. So we're really privileged next week to have David speaking with um, the eminent Professor Grace Davey. Yeah, and it's an interview that really sets up um, the sociology of religion in the British context, but also how the British context relates to uh, sociology of religion in other countries. And we talk a fair bit about um, how things are different in the US context, for instance, the different methodologies that result, um, and also about how we need to remain cognizant of the fact that our historical and social context affects the way that we conceptualize things. And for so often, um, ideas of, say, secularization, of modernization, that come from our specifically European context have been exported and implied, um, exported and um, applied to uh, international contexts when actually we may have been the exception all along. So come back next week to hear more about that. Fantastic. As ever, remember, we've got our social media feeds, Twitter, YouTube, Google Plus, and we've just passed 4,000 likes on Facebook, which is wow. a, you know, makes us feel wonderfully proud that this has grown from a sort of back shed enterprise <laughs> and become the thing that it is today. The, the, from mixing yeah, the, metaphors. The then. roaring juggernaut out, smashing out of a shed. I'm not sure where this yeah, is going. No idea. Um, um, but yeah, remember our social media feeds. Um, you can get in touch with us again, opsdigest or rspeditors at gmail.com. Come back later in the week for some responses for the Opportunities Digest. But for now, thanks for listening. <laughs>